This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on Sign In, and then Create a New Account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Green Beret veteran and the founder of Warrior Rising, Jason Van Camp. So we discuss a host of topics, from his athletics as a child, his journey into the military, the epilepsy that forced him out of service, entering the world of business, 
helping veterans transition out into the entrepreneurial space, deliberate discomfort, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jason Van Camp. Enjoy. Well, Jason, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Hey, it's my honor to be here. If I can add value in some way, it would be an honor. So it was uh, Brant McCartney that actually connected us ultimately, even though I knew of you and Warrior Rising prior to that. So just as an icebreaker, how do you know Brant? Brant, what a good, good dude. You know, he's he's uh, salt of the earth for sure. So um, we had a, an event for my nonprofit, Warrior Rising, in San Antonio, Texas last year in September. And a good friend of mine, John McCaskill, he's all over social media, specifically on LinkedIn. He's got a podcast called Men Talking Mindfulness, uh, former Navy SEAL commander, a great friend of mine. I invited him down to San Antonio and he said, hey, I've got a friend here named Brant. He'd like to meet you. He'd like to come down and be a part of it. And I said, sure thing. And so Brant came down early and immediately uh, Brant and I connected. We had, we had immediate chemistry the guy looks like uh, Prince Charming from Shrek. You know, <laughs> he's uh, he's like twenty years old, and he's just crushing it. Like he was telling me about everything he's doing, everybody he knows, and I was like, man, it took me ten years to cultivate these relationships, and you've done it in like six months, man. I can't believe it. And he he really believes in what he's doing. He really cares, um, and he's a guy that you just feel like you want to help. You know. And so that's how we connected. We became really close, really good friends ever since then. Um, I invited him to a few other events that we've had, Salt Lake City and then the Army-Navy football game in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, we did a um, 38 challenge thing with him on the Rocky Steps in Philadelphia. Um, he's coming to events this year for us. He's just a great guy. So long-winded uh, answer to how do you know, how do you know Brandt, but he's a good guy to know. Brilliant. Well, we'll get into obviously the cross pollination as this, you know, some of your story that, that parallels his brothers at least. Um, starting at the very beginning of your timeline, though, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Sure. I was born in Washington, D.C., on February 1st, 1977. And I grew up in, in Virginia, on the Virginia side of Washington, D.C., so in that area. Uh, in a town called Springfield. And it was, uh, you know, uh, an up and coming sort of development town at the time. We lived by a lake in Virginia. You see like a lot of woods, a lot of woods, a lot of hills, no mountains, that sort of thing. Just a lot of, a lot of forest, you know. 
And although there were a lot of force, it was the suburbs and we were maybe, you know, 20, 25 minutes to Washington, D.C. with no traffic. And my uh, my parents, so I was the first of three kids. I have a brother who's three years younger and a sister who's six years younger. And uh, my dad, he grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, so not too far. So basically on the Maryland side of Washington, D.C. And he... Uh, was in the military for a short period of time. He was lucky enough to, during the Vietnam War. He was lucky enough to be stationed in Paris, France during the Vietnam War. But uh, he and his buddies got wasted one night and drove home drunk and got into a horrible car accident. And he he broke his back and broke his jaw and lost most of his teeth and and all this stuff. So he was he was discharged. And he was working as a bartender downtown. Washington, D.C. He met my mother. She was um, working for Delta Airlines at the Washington Reagan Airport. She was a supervisor. So so um, not a flight attendant or anything, but like a, a behind the scenes sort of uh, work for corporate sort of thing. And uh, they got married. I think my dad was like 27. My mom was like 22. They got married, something like that. And uh, they just enjoyed the young life for a little bit, and then uh, and then they had me and moved to the suburbs, and that's kind of how how it all worked out, which I'm sure is a, is a very similar story to a lot of uh, young couples, families in in America, in the United States. So, with your dad's powerful story, you know, so many of his brothers and sisters were deployed, obviously, into Southeast Asia. He found himself in France. Was there ever any element of, of guilt of not being deployed there? And then certainly, obviously, the physical side, you know, once he was forced to transition out of the military, did he have his own kind of struggles with his transition, even though ultimately he hadn't seen combat specifically? Uh, that's an interesting question. So uh, my dad made a catastrophic error, something that you never do when you're in basic training. You never volunteer for anything, right? And so he volunteered and he's, he was told that he was going to be working on this new technology called computers. And so he was sent to um, Virginia Beach, Virginia to work on these huge refrigerator type of machines with punch cards and, and all that stuff called computers. And uh, that was a brand new technology, brand new thing. Right. And then once he got proficient at that, they sent him to, to Paris, France. Uh, my dad told me, I'm not sure if this is even accurate because he told me when I was young and I never questioned him or never asked again, but he said uh, the guys that went over the guys that he went to basic training with when they went over to Vietnam, I guess their plane crashed or something and they all died. And so my dad just sort of matter of factly said that. Um, and he said he was lucky that he wasn't part of that, you know, so we kind of learned to volunteer for things, you know, in his life. Uh, he's never really expressed any regret to me because he never saw combat. He never did anything like that. It was a draft time in the United States, meaning that, he was forced to go into the military. He wasn't. Uh, he didn't volunteer to do it, and uh, I don't think he ever really considered himself a military guy or a veteran or anything like that. Never talked about it. Never displayed anything. He had some old 
you know, army bags or whatever in the basement, you know, that you could smell the mildew from time to time, but he never really said anything about it. Um, my uncles, a lot of them served in Vietnam and did see some combat, did see some action. You know, my dad, I think, felt better about that because after the military, he became a civilian contractor, you know, and then he worked uh, for Army Material Commands as a civilian for the rest of his life until he retired. And so he worked at the Pentagon and then he worked at the MC building in Alexandria, Virginia for a long time. So he was a government guy. And so growing up in that area, you know, you have show and tell or or whatever. And, and they're like, what does your dad do? Like all the kids, like almost all of them will say the same thing. My dad works for the government. Oh, really? What does he do? I don't know. Like that's like kind of the, the standard answer that you give. And so I really had no idea what my dad did growing up other than he worked for the government. So with the uncles, I mean, you obviously have got your own transition story out of the army. We'll get to that in a little while. But of all the different kind of uh, eras of, of soldiers that I've had on here, I would say that probably the Vietnam era, I mean, the, the Korean era obviously is almost a forgotten war. So they're almost kind of disregarded. But the Vietnam, it seemed like so many of them came back, not just to kind of neutrality, but almost hate. So did any of them struggle with their transition out? You know, um, that's a great question and one that I never pursued because I didn't know it was a thing. You know, growing up, I knew that they served. I thought it was interesting. Um, I would ask them questions from time to time as a young man, and the answers that I would get were um, kind of stonewall. You know, like, oh, I don't want to talk about that, you know, or, or things like that. And I was curious, you know, like, hey, hey, what was it like? Did you kill anybody? Like, how, how, you know, like you see these movies like Rambo and like, you know, The Longest Day or whatever, and you want to know, like you're not, and as a young guy, you know? And so for me, whenever people ask me questions like that, I don't get offended. I don't get angry, you know? And I think to myself, hey, man, you know, there's no way that my uncle saw or did any more than what I did, you know, as a special forces commander. You know, and I have no problem sharing my experiences with people that are genuinely interested in hearing about them, right? Because it only um, defeats ignorance and it provides you intelligence and, and helps you to to understand and to learn more. And so, honestly, like for my uncles, I thought a few of them were, were kind of weird. You know, they acted a little different from society. Um, looking back on it now, they were I could I could sense that some of them were affected. You know, I, I know one of them was a helicopter door gunner, you know. Um, another one was sort of like a, a wire cutter type guy. That's as much as I could I could get out of them. Uh, another than that, the feeling that I got was they wanted to um, compartmentalize that part of their lives and just kind of put it in a box and never think about it again and never, you know, have, nobody's going to ask any questions. I'm not going to – it's just somebody – that I was, that I'm no longer something that I did that I no longer do. It's over here. Now I'm a completely different person and I move forward in this direction. Now, I don't think that's the healthiest way to go about it, you know, because ultimately I, I think it'll, it'll affect you. It'll destroy you from the inside without confronting those fears, confronting those issues, you know, and working through them in, in, a, in a productive way. But that's how it was for, for, for me and my dad's side of the family, my, my uncle's over there. 
So I think it's an important conversation. From what I understand from one of the, my previous guests, the 22 a day figures, supposedly a lot of those are actually our Vietnam vets because they're now transitioning out of whatever profession they went into. So they dove into you know some sort of industry or or profession, and now they're retiring, and now maybe they're in that you know apartment on their own or whatever it is, but they're not. They don't have that busyness anymore. They don't have that tribe that maybe they found in that new career. And now they're finding themselves outside, isolated, and you know now having to face some of the things that they saw in the 60s and 70s. That's correct. And so we have the term PTSD or PTS, post-traumatic stress. Um, there's a term that I've learned recently. It's called LTSD, lack of traumatic stress disorder. And what I mean by that is Guys, they experience this incredible stress and they're unable to deal with it. They jump right into something that's also stressful, not equally stressful, but also stressful so that they can focus their attention and divert their thoughts towards this, whatever it is, this business, this new job, this new whatever. And so I've got a friend, um, I'm not going to name names or give any specifics on it. But uh, he was a ranger and uh, he got out. He, he created a very successful business and he was all over social media. He was doing amazing things. You know, he, he married his, the love of his life. They, they had a, a, a number of sons just seemingly living this I, I, idyllic lifestyle, right? And every time I went to go see him or hang out, he was always happy. He's always willing to, to serve and to provide and to help and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, business is a grind. It's not always easy. And after years and years and years of grinding and working hard, it seemed like his business had turned the corner and was skyrocketing on the way to substantial success. And so, you know, he and his wife and some friends, they went to go celebrate. Um, and he got, uh, and they went out and they hung out and it was sort of an outdoor activity and and uh, they were drinking and he got into an argument with his wife, you know, over, over something stupid. You know, she wanted to leave. She wanted to go home. She was tired. He didn't want to leave. Uh, and so he was so upset that he, uh, he went and he, and he hung himself and he killed himself. And so all of his friends and his family and everyone was like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? We, we didn't see any, any signs. He had just, you know, he, he's at this point now where he's making millions of dollars. He's, you know, like he worked so hard to get to this level and now he's gone. Why? You know, and, and as friends, we were, we were talking and thinking, you know what? He was dealing with a lot of stuff that he never really confronted before. And now that, because he basically spent all this time focused on his business, you know, and once the business no longer needed his focus and his attention, when he no longer had that stress of business, when he had that lack of stress, all of a sudden he had time to think. All of a sudden thoughts started creeping into his mind. All of a sudden, you know, he had to deal with things that he didn't want to deal with. And um, and how he dealt with it was by escaping in another way, was by just ending his life. And so I think a lot of guys are going through that process. Um, they think they're alone. They think they're the only person dealing with this. They don't understand that every you know, like all these other people are dealing with it. They don't understand that, you know, that feeling that you have doesn't end. It just gets transferred to your friends and family. 
you know? And, uh, and so that's something that we need to discuss, you know, is, is that lack of traumatic stress, you know, and, and actually having the, the courage to face your fears, face your demons, face the things that um, you think will destroy you, you know? It's really interesting. As I started doing this podcast, it's about six and a half years in now. I had this awakening of all these different areas of mental health. And one of the big aha moments was the childhood trauma part. When uh, Supposedly, when you look at most of us in uniform, they have the what's called the ACEs, the acute childhood experience score. Um, most of us, I think it goes up to 15, are like 13 to 15. But then when you take a step back and look at it, it makes perfect sense. If you have been hurt or you've been traumatized in some, some way when you were younger, you're either going to allow it to crush you or you're going to want to become the protector. You want the buck to stop there. But address that trauma can become a power. If unaddressed, it becomes a kind of a weakening in the foundation. But then you also add in, this happened to a friend of mine who actually went through Green Beret selection. He got selected, but then kind of fell apart after, um, is you also have that busyness, you have that stress. So, you know, you want to bury that, you want to stay busy, then you become a Green Beret or a firefighter or a police officer. And then you seek, you know, the highest op tempo that you can. And that will sustain you for a certain while until it doesn't. And it might be in your career, it might be after your transition out. But as you said, if we're not addressing that nucleus, there's a, a Mexican proverb that says, they try to bury us, they didn't realize that we were seeds. And it's that, you've pushed everything down. When is it going to rear its ugly head? If you address it, like I said, it will become resilience. If you don't address it, a seemingly small event, like an argument with your wife, will you know possibly be the final straw that leads to suicide or an overdose. Yeah, and that's, I love that Mexican proverb. I've never heard that before. You know, one way to look at it is, all these things that happen to you, it's, it's it's providing you with something. It's providing you with with fuel, with gasoline in a way. And you can use that gasoline to burn yourself to the ground, or you can use that gasoline to propel yourself to something greater. You know, and that's how I look at it. Um, another way to look at it is is the idea of the mission. You know, that mission first mentality is just so ingrained in us as veterans, even first responders too. And so when you're under the when you have the understanding that there's something to do when we have a mission to accomplish and you can't rest until that mission is complete. You know, once you get to a point when all the missions are complete and you ask yourself, well, now what, what's next? What's the next mission? I, I learned this the other day from, from a guy that was having a hard time that I, that I spoke with. He said, the next mission for me was myself. I was the enemy. I was the bad guy. I needed to eliminate myself. And so that's why I attempted suicide. And I never thought about it like that before. You know, guys are thinking, I'm a detriment to society. I am unhealthy for my family. I am causing evil. I need to get rid of myself. That's pretty hard to, to comprehend, but a lot of guys are feeling that way. That is one of the biggest kind of aha moments that, that I had as I've, as I said, I've gone through this journey is I think so many of us when we were younger, you know, 10 years ago plus, kind of all aligned with that same thing. You hear about a suicide. How could they do that? That's so cowardly. It's so selfish. 
And then you start speaking to people over and over and over again that have been there. Some of them were about to, some of them actually went through with the attempt and they survived. And thank God they're here to tell the tale. And now they're actually, you know, advocates for mental health. But we talk about, oh, you know, call me if you're struggling or, or think about your wife and your kids. Well, when someone is in crisis, when their brain is so broken and miswired by that point through all these contributing factors, the same same kind of idea resonates over and over again. I felt like I was a burden. So now you think you're a burden. Now you truly believe because your brain has tricked you that you are the reason that your child is unhappy, that your wife is unhappy, that, you know, whatever, your brothers and sisters and then you're also in a profession where you've already agreed years ago to lay down your life for a complete stranger, then just like you talked about, well, the answer is simple. Of course, I'm scared, but I'm a courageous warrior. I'm going to complete this mission. I'm going to remove myself. Now my children and my wife will be happy. A healthy yes. brain on the outside is looking going, what the fuck are you talking about? That's the opposite of what you should be doing. But that's what we've got to understand. These people are so mentally sick and i mean that in a positive kind of compassion way that they're so miswired that their brain has tricked them to believing the opposite which is you know our human goal is to, is to is to to live to protect our children to make sure that you know we reproduce and continue our lineage but we're so broken by that point that we truly in our hearts believe that we are a burden to the very people that love us mm, that's exactly correct miswired right and you, and you say that with the most understanding and compassion you know not as a intended to, to offend anyone but if we can help them to understand that i think that's that's a pretty positive step in the right direction yeah i, I just think that every you know a suicide awareness poster should say are you feeling like a burden to the world? That would be a huge red flag for you to reach out, you know, before it's too late. Because as soon as you get those intrusive thoughts, that's the spiral. Exactly. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And there's also that the caregiver fatigue, you know. So the folks that are volunteering and helping and and listening and 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 there for others, I've seen the statistics that the caregivers are the ones that once it's all said and done. They're the ones where they have the highest suicide rate for them. They're the ones giving positive encouragement and feedback. And then all of a sudden, you know, when they don't have someone to help or they have to face their own demons or they've had so much negativity and, and they, they're so depressed because they haven't been successful or people that they've cared about have committed suicide that they don't feel like there's a reason to go on. They don't feel like they're, they're valuable, that what they've done is worthwhile. They feel defeated and then, and then they follow the same path, you know? It's tough to digest. It is. It is indeed. But I mean, these are nuanced conversations. And the problem is a lot of the conversations out there at the moment are very black and white. And we've got to understand there's all these layers and these compounding elements. Everyone's journey is different. And if you're not talking about organizational betrayal and sleep deprivation and psychiatric meds and alcohol usage and childhood trauma and marital problems you know and all you're talking about is guns or what we saw in combat or on the streets where we protect then we're missing such a massive piece of the puzzle yep correct correct 
Well, I want to walk forward with your journey, but just before we do, with this lens that you have now on the other side of your profession, when you look back at your childhood, were there any elements that you would consider maybe fractured your foundation or did you have, you know, a solid one coming through? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I, um, man, I, I was lucky. You know, I came from a, a phenomenal uh, foundation, my, the background, you know, um, my mother kept everything together for for our family. She was very strong. She had a vision. She knew what she wanted. She, she knew what she wanted to do. And uh, and my dad um, was very supportive. So my dad came from a family where he sort of had an abs- absentee father. So my my grandfather, on my dad's side, he died before I was born, but he was uh, he was a very talented individual. Uh, photographic memory. He was a drummer in the in the big band era. Very very famous and successful. And he developed um, um, arthritis in his hands, and he also had um, uh, psoriasis of his hands. And so he could no longer play the drums, you know, because it just hurt. And then it just kind of affected the way he played drums. And so he had to give that up. And I guess in his, his late 20s, just when things were going really well for him, and I guess that made him really depressed, and he resented that, and he hated his life. He became an accountant. He was a very strong Catholic. He had nine kids, and um, all of his kids, even right now, they, they don't look at him in a positive light. They hate him. Like, my dad hated his father, and he said his father was never there for him. My dad never graduated from high school. He dropped out. He became a thug. He was a thief. You know, then he went to Vietnam and all this stuff. And so I'm I'm saying this stuff because, um, well, I'll go back to my grandfather as well. I guess he, he drank a lot, you know, and he just didn't, he was depressed and he didn't want to be where he was. And he drank so much that he, he burned a hole in his throat, the alcohol. And then um, he just bled to death in his sleep one night because he couldn't breathe. And uh, it's just a terrible way to go. But my, my dad always was kind of like, you know what, because my dad wasn't there for me for anything. I'm going to be there for you for everything. So he was always there for me for anything I, I did, any any presentation, any game, any practice. He was always volunteering to be a coach, you know, and all that stuff. And so I've always known that my dad cares and he loves and he wants to be better. He wanted to be a good dad. He was. My mother, um, you know, she's like like a lot of moms, very protective of their kids, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, growing up, we had a unique sort of experience because I was about nine years old and uh, my dad wanted me to help him put some shelves in the basement and he kind of fell down and he told me to get get mom, you know, and she called the ambulance. My dad had a, had a severe, severe heart attack. And uh, the ambulance took him to the hospital and, and uh, the doctor, you know, came out at one point, you know, me my mom, my brother and sister. And he's like, Hey, he's, it's, uh, there's nothing I can do for him. Did everything we could. He's not going to make it through the night, you know, go and say goodbye. And so we all went in to say goodbye. And um, I remember my dad told me, he's like, Hey, you know, you're the man of the house. Now you, you're in charge. You take care of your mom and your brother and your sister and, and everything. And um, that was a, a moment for me where I grew up a lot, you know, you know, seeing that, hearing that, knowing that that was the case. 
and eventually my dad, you know, to the shock of the doctors, he, he pulled through, you know, and then a few years later, he had a brain aneurysm, kind of the same thing, you know, told, you know, say life flighted helicopter down in the University of Virginia, uh, the only doctor or available to kind of do this type of surgery to remove this tumor from his brain. And it was the same thing. We said goodbye to him, you know, everything he pulled through, you know, like somehow he pulled through. And my mother was diagnosed uh, with terminal lung cancer when I was nine years old, you know? And so growing up as children, like we saw a lot of that. And what we saw was, you know, our parents being very, very vulnerable. You know, we saw the mortality of our parents. We knew that they, they, they were going to die or they had died and come back to life, you know, sort of thing. And so I think when those things happened to us, like my brother, my sister and I, we, we grew up a lot. And so we would get comments all the time from other parents, like, oh, your children are so well-behaved. And they would ask our parents for like advice on how to be better parents and all this stuff. And, it, and my parents were like, we're not doing anything really, you know, like, you guys are just like that. And it was because I think we saw our parents in such a light that we didn't take things for granted any longer, you know, and we tried to spend as much quality time with them as we could, um, you know, before they died. And, um, and so I think it, death was introduced to me at a very young age and I learned to live with it, to learn to um, be friendly with it. You know, I didn't fear it. You know, my, my best friend growing up, my next door neighbor, when we were 14, he, he was messing around and he, he, he was jumped on a car and the car sped away and he fell off and he hit his head on the curb and just died right there on the curb, you know, and different things like to each his own, everybody has their own life experiences. For me, I've seen and been around death a lot you know so with that i mean you have these you know these incredible interactions with your parents and i don't think i'll be a very popular parenting <coughs> book how to raise your kids through terminal disease diagnoses but uh <laughs> yeah i guess yeah <laughs> but that being said you've got these uncles that were in the military your dad's was more of a you know um the uh oh my god what's the term now enlistment not enlistment the drafting excuse me your dad was a drafting experience so were yeah. you thinking of the military when you were school age or was there something else on your mind at that point uh you know my mom used to say show me your friends and i'll show you your future and so um meaning like if you want to be a starter on the on the team hang around the starters you know if you want to be a millionaire hang out with millionaires but at the same time it's like hey if you want to be a, a loser and deal drugs or whatever hang out with those guys you know um now we say show me your network and i'll show you your net worth and so um growing up like i said all the kids in school their dads were government or military more or less and so i thought about it but i didn't really know anything about it you know, the 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 guys, dads were hardcore in the military. What we saw was when we were young, like kindergarten, you know, elementary school, they had high and tight haircuts. They were all about G.I. Joe. They knew like all the weapons. They knew all the aircraft. They knew all that stuff. And then all of a sudden when they got into junior high, they all had long hair, 
You know, they had nothing, they wanted nothing to do with the military. They were burned out. You know, they were the guys that were getting in trouble, smoking cigarettes and then later drugs, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, The burnout type kids, you know, and that's fine. But that's what I saw was like, you you can't go super hard on on military with your kids in the beginning because they're going to get burned out. They're going to want to do something different than what the dad did. So my parents, I think, learned that and never really pushed that down my throat. My grandfather on my mother's side, he was lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And so he was in the Army during World War II. And uh, the Army later had a brand, the Army Air Corps, which later turned into the Air Force. And so he kind of followed that route for his life, for his career. And so my mother would always, she, would, she wouldn't always, but sometimes she would talk about the, the military and she would say the military is a pretty good route to go, you know, but if you do that, you know, you have to be an officer you know, dad, grandpa was an officer and he did this and he did that. So you kind of looked at it and with, with pride, but nobody ever told me, Jason, this is how you become an officer. This is what an officer does. This is what it's like to be in the military. Nothing like that. You know, we just knew at the time that um, the Russians, you know, growing up in the 80s, the Russians were our number one enemy, especially in Washington, D.C. You know, there were spies everywhere. You know what I mean? We learned that after the fact. And so uh, I wasn't a, a kid. Who, I was very patriotic, but I wasn't a kid who was like, I'm definitely going to the military. I thought, you know, this is an option. This is an opportunity. Maybe I will. Um, I was more concerned with with playing sports, you know, as a young kid. Like, let's just play sports, football, basketball, lacrosse. You know, I did some track and wrestling and baseball at times, but I was always just kind of focused on on that and and academics as well to a degree, but mostly sports. So with that, you mentioned some team sports, you mentioned some individual sports. I mean, you're part of a team, but you're on the mat on your own at that point. What did you take from the team sports and what did you take from the individual? Because I've been a part of both and they're definitely two different dynamics for, for, you know, leadership and ownership and other areas. Yeah, that's a great question too. So um, I did Tong Soo Do. So um, when I was a kid, and I, I left, I didn't get my black belt. I left like kind of in the middle there before I got my black belt. I wish I would have stuck with it. Um, it, it wasn't as fun t- for me as, as team sports. You know, it, it was a different type of discipline. Uh, wrestling, kind of the same thing. I got into it very late, you know, and... Um, it was very hard, you know, like going wrestling practice. I mean, you want to know what hard looks like? Go to wrestling practice. You know what I mean? And I got injured uh, and, I, and I couldn't finish the season. Uh, track and field, you know, is also an individual sport in a way. Um, and I, I enjoyed that. But as I got older, I wasn't – I could see other people with more talent succeeding you know on on the on the track you guys you know, no matter what i did i would never be able to catch you know what i mean like the races and things like that and so that when that started to happen like i started to lose interest a little bit uh basketball kind of and so going into team sports now uh basketball for me i grew up really fast was always the tallest guy uh i was always the center you know and then getting into high school, everybody started to catch up to me, you know, and, and I and I wasn't growing anymore. And I wish I had grown because 
I really enjoyed basketball. And so that also became very difficult. You know, you can't have like a six foot one center any longer. Right. Uh, football. I, uh, I learned that if you continue to work hard, you can sort of get better at it and, and kind of propel yourself to, to something greater. And I always liked that idea of doesn't matter what you look like. doesn't matter your body type. There's a place for you on the football team as long as you're willing to put forth the effort. You know, I always liked that because I was a big, you know, high effort guy sort of thing. And what I saw was that, and what I learned was that life isn't about trophies. It's about people. And it's about the journey that you take with those people. So individual accomplishments, like getting individual trophies and all that stuff was great. And you're proud of that. But getting trophies as a team, I realized that what made me the happiest was not the the piece of metal or the the trophy or, or, or hoisting that thing. It was looking around at your teammates' faces, you know, while we, after the championship. And I was like, this is what it was all about. These guys, you know what I mean? Like, the reward wasn't the end. It was the journey that we took. And the memories that I have are the memories that I shared with these guys, you know, not the individual memories of, of working hard. And surely those things played a role in my life and helped me, but it, to me, it was all about team. So I always gravitated towards team stuff. And that's sort of what inspired me to join the special forces as well is because it's a team thing. It's not an individual thing. I'm not James Bond. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, uh, you know, I would have said Rambo, but he's sort of an individual too. <laughs> Very. <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> he was once on a team though. He was a Green Beret that was once on a team. So it was all to me about, about being on that team, being on a special, unique, you know, elite team of like-minded individuals that wanted to succeed and go to a place that you couldn't get there on your own. Well, like the Band of Brothers. Yeah, totally. Well, well, then walk me through, as you said, you didn't have like a specific laser focus on the military. What took you to West Point? And talk to me about playing for the Black Knights. Yeah, man. So, uh, like I said, I played a lot of sports in high school and um, I was pretty good at football. And my junior year, was the year that kind of put me on the map and I was a linebacker and I, I made a lot of plays and I was first team all district and everything. And, you know, uh, we were a very good team, you know, and uh, the seniors on my team were, were excellent and we almost won the state championship and it was just a great season and just a, just a, a time in my life that kind of shaped who I am. Right. And, I was getting all these letters and calls from big time college sports programs. And I, my head got a little too big. You know, I was thinking, Oh man, I'm going big time. I'm going to go to Florida state university or Nebraska or, you know, USC and, you know, all, all these schools. And I wasn't like bragging about it or anything, but like internally I was, I was satisfied. I was content. I was happy with myself, you know, and then my senior year, you know, we didn't have as good a season as we did my junior year. All the seniors that were really good had graduated, but I was the captain of the team. And 
these colleges would come to the games and they would see me play and they'd be excited and then they'd have me meet them in the coach's office after the game or whatever. And, and then they meet me and you just see a look of disappointment on their faces. You're like, oh man, you're not as big as I thought. You know, like, oh, like you're six foot. What are you, six foot? I'm like, I'm six foot one. They're like, oh, well, how much do you weigh? I'm like 185 pounds. They're like, ah, you know, like th- those kind of like, and ultimately they're like, man, you're just too small as a linebacker. You know, you, you need to get a lot bigger. Like look at some of the guys we were, we were recruiting. And one of the guys that we were recruiting heavily at the time is, is a guy named LeVar Arrington who played at Penn State. And Penn State was looking at me too. And this dude was like 6'6", six, six, a ripped 260, just like not a shred of fat on him. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated Magazine. They're like, Jason, we got to pick between you and him. And then it's just like, yeah, of course you're going to go with, <laughs> with LeVar Arrington. You know, like the guy's a beast. And so that's what a lot of these schools were, were contending with. And and I was, I still was recruited by a lot of schools. And one of them was West Point. And, and they historically did it aren't able to get the the big time recruits to come to West Point, but they get the guys that are a little undersized or, you know, the, the, the discipline, the scrappy guys, you know, that's historically who they, who they uh, get, you know, and the recruiter from West Point uh, was from Virginia. And he, for whatever reason, just loved me, man. And he would call me all the time. He would, you know, go to games. He would, he came to my house for dinner. Like he was just relentless, relentless. And I didn't want to go to West Point, you know, I took a visit there. It was an awful visit. Hated it, you know. And uh, you know, it came to the end of the, the decision making time in February, where like you have to commit, you have to declare which college you're going to go to. And uh, most everybody had declared. And this recruiter came to my house, you know, and he's like, "Jason, really want you to come, you know, um, but we need to know. Like, if you tell me no." Like we're going to go in a different direction. We're going to recruit some other other guys. So, so just let me know. And I remember looking at my parents, and they really wanted me to go to West Point. And they were both like, "Please say yes," you know. And so I said yes, and I didn't want to disappoint them or the or the recruiter. And they were all excited. And I called the head coach on the phone. He's like, "How does it feel to be a part of the Long Gray Line and all this stuff?" And and I, the whole time, I I just felt bad. I was like, "I don't want to go here. You know, I want to go somewhere else." Um, but I fall through with my commitment. So I, I went to West Point and, uh, and I didn't know what to expect. Right. So I knew that the, the recruiters were lying to me about West Point, meaning they're like, oh, you don't have to worry about doing military stuff. Like we're going to be up at the stadium working out the whole time. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. We got mentors on staff that'll like help you out with your homework and do all this stuff. You don't have to worry. And like at the time I knew like, oh, these guys are lying. You know what I mean? Like, and so when I get to West Point, it, I was I was correct. Like there was, you know, two months in the summertime of basic training, all military stuff. You don't barely even get to see the football stadium or do anything there. And then the football guys, you know, once you get there, they're also tough on you. And so it was a it was a hard, it was a difficult experience for me, that whole the whole West Point experience. I, I didn't enjoy it. Um, you know, but I, I didn't quit. I, I followed through with it. I did everything, graduated, played football there. You know, we had one good season my sophomore year. I left uh, my sophomore year for a two-year mission for my church and uh, went to Russia. So I was there for two years. And I came back and graduated uh, with uh, 
not my original class, but the class that was two years behind me. I said that was a unique experience. Uh, but I'll tell you, I was pretty glad to get out of there. You know, when I graduated, I was like, I'm I'm out, I'm never coming back, you know, sort of thing. Well, you were talking about, you know, being young during the, I guess, the Cold War, you know, the, the Reagan era. Um, and now you find yourself living in Russia for two years. Now here we are again, and Russia is the bad guy. And, you know, to me, as you were talking about, you know, the stories from combat educate the people on the nuances, you know, the gray between the, the two extremes. What did you see with your own eyes at that period with the Russian people that you interacted with? Yeah, so... Um... I, I loved it. I loved the entire experience. And I'll tell you what I saw. So I'd never really been outside of the country before until I, I went to Russia for this two-year mission. So um, initially you go to Provo, Utah for, for the missionary training center. So you learn Russian, you learn how to be a missionary, you learn how to, how to do those things. And that was an enjoyable experience. And I think it was more enjoyable for me than anyone else because to me, it felt like I, I had escaped West Point. I don't have to deal with that stuff any longer. I don't have to be a part of that, which I hated. So I was free in a way, you know, and, and what what's hard at West Point isn't hard anywhere else. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I remember going to Russia and getting off the plane. There was a bunch of other missionaries there with us. And and I remember um, it was it was March and it was cold. And it was dirty and it was gray. And like, I remember, man, like this is a dirty, dirty place. Like there's just, you know, street grime everywhere and, um, and cold and like kind of chilly, like bone chill, cold sort of, sort of thing. And, uh, and we get to know the people, you know, and the people were fantastic. Just, just the nicest, most, most welcoming people. Um, very different than the United States, you know, very, very different. They're, they're very hard, you know, um, they're not a weak people, you know, at the time the economy had collapsed. And so people were not getting paid, but they were still going to their job every single day. And you're like, Hey, like, when's the last time you got a paycheck? And they're like, uh, probably two years ago. Like, well, why do you do this? Why do you go? Because if I quit, then my boss, if he ever does get money, then he won't give it to me. So I'm holding on, holding out here, hoping that he'll eventually pay me what he owes me. And then it's sort of like, well, how do you live? How do you, how do you have an apartment? How do you, how do you eat? How do you do these things? We just figure it out. And just like, man, like what an amazing, resourceful people, like, you know, undeterred, undaunted, they figure it out. I love that, you know? And, um, and they all had dachas, which meant like a summer house. So every summer they'd leave and they'd go into the to the woods, into the countryside and just live out there, which was just awesome, just peaceful. And they just re-energize and, and, all, that, and all that stuff. Um, they shut off the hot water in the springtime. So you can take a shower, very dirty water. I mean, the, the, the water at the time was just kind of yellow and brown, which is kind of shocking. Uh, but they shut off the hot water in the spring and the summer and they turn it back on again in, in October time frame. So you have to take cold showers, you know, um, they what they eat was pretty standard stuff, you know, just meat and carbs and, you know, potatoes and, and, and things like that. Um, 
people there were trying to figure out how to live and they hustled people that were were hustling you know they wanted to learn about americans as well the young people there loved americans we want to learn all about you we've watched movies what's it like the older russians there they're like please you know come in we want to we want to help you we feel so sorry for you. we so feel so bad for you you know and, and you're kind of like well why like well because you're an american like we're so sorry that you have to live like that you know and it's just kind of like well how do you think we live you know and, and the way that they described it to me and to, to us was a lot of the older folks believed that we lived in the wild west where there was like we we're wearing cowboy hats and people were just shooting each other on the street and like the, the kids were hungry and we we're just you know a destitute capitalism doesn't doesn't work and you know and it's kind of like well uh, you know we don't have pictures on our phones because that wasn't available at the time but we had like a, a scrapbook a small little scrapbook that we showed and it was kind of like well here's my my family here's my house where i grew up here's my whatever and they're like what is this and I'm like this is america and they're like this is america like there's you live in that house like this the house is as big as our apartment building how many people live there just me and my family and so like their minds were like just rocked like you've got to be kidding me like we've been lied to our whole lives you know America is not destitute. America is not like that. America is, you know, and so they, a lot of them, I guess, didn't believe me that this was the case, you know? And they're like, well, what did you think Russia was like? And I know a lot of people thought that Russia was very cold and snow and ice and polar bears on the streets. And, and like, that's what people think. And I'm like, some people think, you know, like that's what it's like. You wear the shopkas and you do the dance and all that. And so it was comical for them to see that. Um, but there were people that cared about their families that wanted to wanted more, you know, that wanted to provide and protect. Um, but there were people that were used to hard times, you know, and that wasn't something that they shirked away from. There were people that were very resourceful, um, you know, and I, and I came to to love the people there. I really had, had I have great relationships there. I love the people there, and you know, and um, it's a tough situation right now with with what what's going on in the world. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for that insight because I haven't, I've traveled a lot in my life, but never been to Russia. But as soon as, you know, Afghanistan kind of was concluded as far as our most recent um, presence there, immediately, you know, Ukraine popped up and it was again, oh, this is the new demon. This is the new evil in the world is Russia. And I'm like, does anyone like questioning if most Russian people know of this or at least care about going into the Ukraine? Because as you said, they've been lied to, we've been lied to. I mean, you look at our at the health of our nation, there's a lot of lies in, in American propaganda as far as all these pills and potions will keep you alive and healthy oh, the rest yeah. of your life. So we oh, all yeah. have propaganda in our world, but it's so important for us to humanize the Russian people, the German people, the Japanese people. None of, you know, not, most of the population were unaware of genocide or what else was going on and they were just being told a superficial political movement that they kind of bought into a little bit but i refuse to believe that most russian people were like you know what i want to do today i want to leave my farm and go and invade the ukraine because you know i hate those people no they want to feed their kids they want to make sure there's a fire they want a roof over their head and they'll make sure their livestock don't die and that's it that's their world so it's it's powerful when you give us you know a first-hand perspective of, of what an american experienced for two years in russia yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. And that's exactly right. I feel like what's going on right now is, you know, Putin is a very strong leader. You know, he's a very determined leader. He's driven. 
you know, and um, to him, you know, there's, there's a quote that I always remember is like, if you never quit, you never fail. Michael Jordan, the basketball player said this once, he said, I never lost a game in my life. I just ran out of time. And I think that's the mindset that Putin has, meaning that to him, the Cold War never ended. To him, the United States never defeated Russia. You know, he's still fighting that war. And for him, he's going to win that war. Um, and you see what's Ru- what Russia's been able to do, you know, um, it's, it's pretty astounding. And I think he's like, you know what? We want to get the Ukraine back. You know, they, they have all these resources. They're, they're led by this president who, who only got elected because he was a comedic actor. Like he doesn't know anything about, you know, it's, it's a joke over there. They need strong leadership. They need us back, you know? And then maybe you got a few, you know, he got a little bit of support from the Ukrainian people, or maybe he heard, you know, some things were being said and done and, you know, gave him some, you know, um, inspiration to, to, to take action. And then he took action. You know, he's the guy who's going to take action. He, he had that first little, you know, skirmish, that endeavor into the Ukraine a few years ago, and really nobody did anything about it. You know, they politically condemned him across, um, and they said, sanction, we're going to give you sanctions. And he was like, whatever, I don't care. And so then he's like, well, nobody did it, anything the first time, really. I'm going to, I'm going to just flat out invade him now. And, uh, and he met with incredible resistance from everybody, you know, where he's not going to win this thing. And he's, there's no way. And it's an embarrassment for the Russian people. Now, the Russian people are thinking, you know, um, because they're being fed this propaganda from their media, you know, which they're great at, you know, in Russia. They're great at feeding lies and, you know, flaming the flames of discord. Uh, hey, this you're, you're patriotic. You know, you're patriotic Russian. You know, like we have to fight this, this justifiable war. You know, if you're not on board, then you're against us. And they're not afraid to throw people in jail, you know? And so that's kind of what they're dealing with right now. Um, I think the Russian soldiers that go over there, they're doing it out of duty and patriotism. I don't think they want to be there. I don't think their hearts are in it. But, you know, when the bullets are flying and you got your brothers by your side, you know, you're going to fight, you know? And that's just the bottom line. Absolutely. Well, I know that you transitioned into the military and that you found yourself in the DMZ in Korea. So while we're on the communism conversation before we progress into the Middle East, what was that? Firstly, kind of what made you go from I hate West Point to joining the military and then talk to me about, you know, coming out of a communist country and then finding yourself on the the border between communism and, and democracy in Korea? Yeah, well, I didn't um enjoy my time at west point I, and i don't think that i'm unique in saying that it's a it's a very difficult place and you know they, they repress freedom and and you know and all that they, they teach you a lot and and i was excited about joining the military you know i wanted to this is my career this is what i was going to do with my life and and i wanted to do well at it and so uh there's a five-year commitment after you leave west point to, to be in the military and to do that and um my first duty station was korea I uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every second of it. I love the military, and I love my time in Korea as well. Uh, I became a ranger uh, before I went to Korea, so I went to ranger school and graduated, and then headed to Korea. And I went with a bunch of friends from West Point, a bunch of Army football players. So we we're all going over there together, young, 
you know, early twenties, single, you know, kids ready to tackle life, you know? And, uh, I walked into my boss's office or I walked into my boss's lobby. I was going to talk to my boss and he was going to tell me what my assignment was. And one of the, uh, one of the NCOs, one of the sergeants, he was in the lobby too. And he, he just walked out of the, uh, the boss's office and he saw me and he looked on my shoulder and I had a ranger tab. He's like, who are you? I'm like, you know, second Lieutenant Van Camp. He's like, you just graduated ranger school? I'm like Roger. He's like, hold on a second. He walked back in the office. He came back out. He's like, you're coming with me. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? You know? And he's like, uh, I'm, I'm, I take all the Rangers, man. I give you guys the best assignments. So I didn't even get a chance to see my boss. I just got pulled into this, this, this unit. It was uh pretty close to the DMZ up North. It was a one company, um, uh, Ford operating days camp, you know, sort of thing. And it was awesome. You know, my, my, my boss, my company commander was, was stellar. The other lieutenants were awesome. The soldiers were awesome. They all loved me, you know, and we did, uh, we didn't go to combat together, but we did a lot of training exercises with the Republic of Korea army. And, uh, and whenever we had time off, you know, like a, a long weekend or whatever, you know, I'd call up my buddies and we just show up at the airport together and just look at the, look at the board say, where do you want to go? You know, we all had passports and we just uh, pick a place and we go somewhere. Like we went to Australia for two weeks and that was awesome. That was our mid tour sort of vacation thing. And you want to go to China for a few days. You want to go to Japan or Saipan or Chejido Island or Singapore or Malaysia or Bali or Indonesia. Like we went everywhere when there was a, a break. And uh, it, was, it was a great time. Uh, I got to know the Korean people as well. Got to speak a little bit of Korean. Uh, spent some time in Seoul, which was a, a fun time, fun town. And then uh, in the summertime when I was there, well, probably, uh, no, wait, you know, in the begin, I think it was the beginning of the year. Yeah, probably like January timeframe. That's when we started to invade Iraq. And, um, and that's when they pulled me into uh, to the 101st Airborne Division to go over there with them and and push off the initial invasion of Iraq. And so uh, my time in Korea was just all training, learning how to be a leader, learning how to be a, an officer. Uh, we were on the border with North Korea, so you could see a North Korean flag from my from my room from the barracks. The big flag you have to. You can see it with the naked eye, but you know to really see it, you need binoculars because it was out there a ways. Huge, huge flag. I guess there was a competition, North Korea and South Korea, who could put the biggest flag, and North Korea won. Uh, the DMZ was right there. I had heard of people sometimes going into the DMZ, but I knew there were mines there and, and shit, so I was like, I don't, don't want to go in there or do anything like that, you know? Uh, and then at the DMZ itself, you can sort of They've got like a building. Tourists can do this as well. You can sort of walk into North Korea and, you know, you see the soldiers there and you walk out. So it was a good time. I, I really enjoyed it. I haven't been back there since, uh, but it was, uh, it was an enjoyable experience. Definitely an interesting perspective. So you talked about deploying to Iraq. This next question really kind of spans yeah, your career from there forward. 
Um, and it kind of touches on what you discussed earlier. It's something I ask everyone who's seen combat. And the backstory of these is a two-part question. Is simply, in America, we get a very polarized view of war through our media. Either, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, stack bodies mentality, or they're all baby killers on the other side. And in the middle are the men and women that actually stood in those battlegrounds, you know, and did what they did and saw what they saw. So the first question was there a point, regardless of the politics, that when you found yourself in one of these areas, you witnessed atrocities that made you realize there were some horrific people that needed to be taken care of? Uh, yeah, so, no, for sure, for sure. Um, it's definitely a different culture over there, right? And uh, when I first went over, it was with a conventional unit, so it was, it was the regular army. Um, and what you see and experience in that environment is different than what I would later experience with the special forces as a commander there, you know? And so, uh, my first deployment, I, I was, um, introduced to, um, uh, a group of people that live near the Sinjar mountain in, in North Iraq and they were called the Yazidi people. And uh, although they were part of the country of Iraq, they didn't identify with being Arab or Iraqi. You know, they were different people. And they uh, they spoke a different language. They had a different religion, you know. And uh, and even our tra- our interpreters, our translators that were Iraqi and spoke perfect English that we, we recruited and vetted and embedded with us, they would, uh, they would be like, oh, they're evil people. You know, they're demons. They're, they're Satan worshipers. And it's kind of, well, they are like, tell me why you believe this. And they would tell like some folklore, you know, belief, you know, and it's just like, well, let me get to the bottom of it. And so we'd meet these people and, and understand that their, uh, their belief system was that Satan wasn't evil. He was sort of like a, a defense attorney, you know, like if, if you make, if that makes sense, like he's the one that, God asked to, you know, enact or execute on the trials that men have, right, in life. And because that's a different perspective, the Arabs believe that they worship Satan, which wasn't true. And so they committed all sorts of atrocities against these people. And even at the time, we were sort of rebuilding the infrastructure. And when these people would come to bid on contracts, like the Arabs would shun them. They wouldn't let them in. You know, they would they would be racist towards them, and they wouldn't give them any money. And then sometimes we would hire them, and after the fact, the Arabs would go and like take their money away. You know, it was just like it's just like an, an odd odd situation, an odd deal. Um, and then we saw, you know, like plenty of people that were of the Islamic faith, and they would say strange things like well the the quran says this the prophet muhammad says this and i would write a lot of this stuff down or remember it i'm like man the quran says a lot of stuff you know uh, muhammad said a lot of stuff where are you getting this stuff well my imam told us oh really well then i i bought the quran and, and i read it while i was in iraq all the way through like what is this all about what do they believe and what i saw was it was it was very similar to the bible you know, it was just stories retold in a slightly different way. And then at the very end, it kind of talks about Muhammad and his battles and, 
you know, his beliefs and, you know, that, that whole thing. It was an interesting read. And what I realized pretty quickly was the people there, at least the ones that I were dealing with, they had never even read the Quran. And so they're, they're believing in this thing. They're quoting this thing, misquoting this thing. They're saying all these things that just aren't true. You know what I mean? And then uh, when I was over there, I would every now and again, occasionally, if we had access to a TV, we'd turn on a TV, there'd be Fox News or CNN, and they'd be saying something. And like, oh man, like they're talking about us. They're talking about like what's going on right here in this city, our unit. And they'd be saying stuff that just wasn't true. It's like, wait, what? Like, really? Like, that's just not even like remotely true at all. It's like a flat lie, you know? And you start to see like they're just reporting things to sensationalize to get more viewers. They're not reporting the truth on a lot of this stuff. Or they're hearing a rumor and then running with it as though it is true without confirming it, you know, because it sounds cool, you know? And so it kind of reminded me of like high school a lot, like, you know, um, the rumor mill in high school and, and things like that. Just people want to have a more interesting life and they just run with rumors to to get more excitement in their lives, right? So that was sort of my first deployment, things that I learned. Um, the second deployment, that's when, uh, you know, we saw more of the, a lot more of the combat and the killing and things like that. And so uh, we were in sort of central Iraq, close to the Iranian border, but also very close to the border of, of Kurdistan which is not really a country, but it's an area, it's a region in, in Iraq that it should be a country. You know, the, the Kurds live there. And uh, my last mission that I did, I had uh, 4,000 Kurds brought down. I had a special permission from General Petraeus to bring these Kurds past this demarcation line to, to conduct operations with us. And, uh, and my interpreter was kind of getting them excited and, it's kind of cool to stand up on stage. It was like kind of like being Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, or a rock concert. Like you're just up there and uh, thousands of these guys are ready to do battle with you as you're the commander. My interpreter had said some things like, we're going to go kill these bad guys. We're going to co-kill these Arabs. And nobody was excited. And then he was like, um, oh, we're going to go kill these bad guys, these Al-Qaeda guys, you know. And uh, one of the Kurds asked, well, we don't care if they're Al-Qaeda but are they Arabs? You know, and my tripper was like, yes. And then everyone was like, ah, like then they got excited because they could kill some Arabs. Like they don't care if they're terrorists. They just wanted to kill, kill Arabs, you know, because they hate Arab. There are people that, um, you know, oppressed them for such a long time and took their country away. And and um, and the general that I worked with, General Shetu, he was a great dude. First mission we went on, uh, we knew that the enemy knew that we were coming. And so they even placed these IEDs along this route and said to make sure that he was the first vehicle in the convoy and which is the vehicle that's going to, you know, if you're going to hit an ID, it's going to be you know, first vehicle. So he got out every time we identified, recognized an ID and he personally dismantled the ID and put it in the back of his, his vehicle. And I was like, man, this dude is a leader. You know what I mean? This dude is a leader. We went into this village and we we cleared this village, and um, and I asked him, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, I'm from this place in Kurdistan called Durbandakan, and Saddam and Kemal Ali they gassed my village when I was young. 
my whole family died. My parents died. I'm the youngest of 13. Like all my brothers and sisters died. I'm the only one that, that lived. I'm the only one that survived. And their legacy lives on in me. You know, everything that I do is for them. I want to make them proud. You know, I want to fight the people that did this to my family. You know, amazing. And so he was uh, just one of the best leaders I've ever met in my life in any in any military. And we did a lot together, you know, and he's just uh, it's an amazing human being. You know, uh, the people in Iraq were predominantly Sunni. And so if you were Shia, um, they would... Uh, they would oppress you as well. And there was a small little Shia village not too far from where we lived. And uh, we knew some of the people there. We tried to gather information from them. They were generally uncooperative as, as everybody else was. But one day we, we, uh, we heard that there was uh, a situation where we went to the village. The village was completely destroyed. There were bullet holes and blood everywhere. There were no, no bodies, but we found out that not Al-Qaeda, but just the Sunni kind of gangs, the tribe. They just came in there and just killed everybody just because they were Shia. They just, you know, had a slightly different perspective on, you know, Islam than they did. And they didn't deserve to live. So they killed everybody. Uh, we eventually um, gathered enough information and leveraged the Kurds, the Peshmerga, the, those who face death, their, their army, their military force to conduct massive operations in that area. And we would find, um, we captured or killed a lot of high value targets and Al-Qaeda operatives and and so forth. And you would see things like, we get swords and bloody dish dashes. And, you know, um, one time uh, we had these four uh, informants, I guess, you know, guys working for us. And uh, Al-Qaeda found out that they were working for us. And so they beheaded all of them. And they sent me uh, their heads in a bag. So it kind of showed up at the front gate of our uh, of our compound. And uh, well, it was a tough one. But anyway, so it was, it was an interesting, we went on a lot of missions. Almost every day we went on a mission. Every day we put ourselves out there. The second deployment was a rough one. You know, my team sergeant, he was uh, shot through his legs. My 18, Charlie, which is my engineer, he was shot in the head and died. Um, my interpreter, Ali, he was a great dude. He was from originally from Iraq, and he lived in Detroit for most of his life. He died right after I left. Let's see. My 18 Echo, Zach, he was blown up in an ID, completely Blue, like basically destroyed his arms. He's okay now, but he was jacked up. Mateen Bravo, Scott, he was a, uh, my weapons guy. He was in a turret when we hit an ID and he got catapulted 100 yards, well, maybe not 100 yards, 100 feet down the road. Uh, you know, un, un, unfathomable distance. And he landed on his rifle, broke his rifle in half, broke his back severely concussed didn't know where he was he was trying to put his rifle back together and and fight the enemy um let's see who else in that deployment you know so it was a rough it was a rough deployment but it was um you know i felt like we we took the fight to the enemy when at the end of the rotation we completely cleared our area of operations from al-qaeda completely you know 
we weren't there for the counterattack a few months later after we left. But at the time, it was, uh, and we sacrificed a lot to help those people. Well, again, thank you for you know just telling the story because this these are the nuances that we don't hear the sacrifice, the loss, especially you know not only the the American and Allied lives, but you know the the natives that that align with you and like you said, some incredible leaders that you talked about that weren't wearing an American uniform. But I think this is such an important thing. Firstly to understand the sacrifices that some of our men and women made whilst wearing, you know, the various uniforms. But secondly, also as a cautionary tale for our children, you know, that maybe believe the propaganda of war, you know, the rock music and jet ski, you know, recruiting videos. It's like, no, there's people that come on here that, you know, there are, there are families that watch their children, their American military children, be beheaded on national television. I mean, we have to understand the horrors of war and therefore hold the politicians accountable when it is unavoidable. It's something that we have to do with the full support of the country. But we also have to make sure that people in suits don't send our, send our children to war on a whim or, God forbid, even because some company they're aligned with, they're going to make a lot of money. Hmm. All well said, all well said, you know, and I don't mind if people have questions, you know, about what it's like or what my opinion is or what my community thinks, you know, like we were talking about the Vietnam era, guys just kind of shut down the stone wall. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I think it's important to talk about it. I think it's important to have these discussions. I think it's important to share these opinions because uh, people are making assumptions and making decisions based on these assumptions you know, which we can't have. Absolutely. Well, the other side, the, the second part of this question, which is equally, you know, unreported and equally as important. I've heard so many um, stories of kindness and compassion in these, you know, these battlefields, these, these zones where combat is happening, whether it's from the American soldiers themselves or British or whoever else is wearing the uniform or the people of, of the land themselves, because we forget we're at war with Iraq, we're at war with Afghanistan. No, we're not. We're at war with the extremists that are also terrorizing the very people that live there. So in, right. in your whole career, were there any, I'm sure there were multiple, were any stories of kindness and compassion that really resonated with you? Uh, that's a great question too. So um, it reminds me of something people people sometimes say or think, you know, especially on the on the extreme far right, they're like, um, and, and also with the Islamic faith, you know, um, well, you killed Muslims. I was like, well, yeah, but we killed Muslims with Muslims. You know, they were right there with us. You know, they were our, our action arm, you know, and in, in, in the Green Beret um, community, what we do is instead of kicking down the door, which we're trained to do, we train the indigenous forces to kick the door down for us and we just follow in behind them. And the indigenous forces that we use were, you know, Iraqi army, Iraqi police, and, and Kurdish guys. You know, uh, the vast majority of which were were of the Islamic faith. You know, so it wasn't as though we were um, fighting Islam. We weren't. We we're fighting these these fundamentalist extremists. You know, these terrorists. That's who we were fighting. I think I don't care if they're Christian or Jewish or you know Islamic. I, I don't Muslim, whatever. You know, we're we're trying to fight this evil. That's what we're fighting. And so, um, just thoughts of compassion. You know, you got to keep your guard up because I always 
try to feel like, at least when I'm a commander, like you always think, you know, is this person lying to me or how can this person, you know, is this person tricking me? Is this a lie? Is this a deception in some way? I always kind of kept that in my mind because you're young and naive and you just accept things. You make mistakes. And when you're a commander, you can't make those kind of mistakes, you know, because it means life and death. And so you try to be very cautious about who you trust and who you don't trust. And there are times when we get reports that, that some of the people that we trusted the most were actually, you know, working for the enemy. And that may or may not be true. We'd have to vet that out, right? We get reports sometimes that uh, the Iraqi army that we we're training had embedded Al-Qaeda operatives in the, in the army. So we were training the very people that would just turn around and try to kill us with the training that we just gave them, you know? So we had to be very careful about that too. Uh, but for the most part, you know, just the interactions with with um, the Iraqi people with with the with the the Arabs, the Muslims, you know, there, um, they were very curious about us. You know, they had a lot of questions, and they were quick to let their guards down. You know, they were quick to share their beliefs. They were they were very excitable kind of group of people. You know, very happy people. They um, they didn't have much, but they were they were very happy to share whatever they had. You know, that's sort of part of their faith as well. Uh, but there were certain things that you perhaps were oblivious to or unaware of that would offend them deeply. You know, customs that you, things you could say or not say, body language, you know, protocols that you you could or, or could not do. They were very very protective of their women. Right. But at the same time, which is unique and is very odd, they were very willing and open to show pornography whenever they could, you know, also some of the, the most uh, deeply religious people. Um, I found it very odd and confusing that they would take sort of a hiatus or a break and they would go somewhere and have like a, a party where they drink alcohol and they'd have women there and they'd just sort of take a religion release week or something like that. You know, I found that very interesting, you know, that that's how they were. Um, anybody that followed the Hajj, meaning the, the pilgrimage to Mecca, they revered those people as well. Uh, so that's sort of my experience with, with those people with the, the Arab people, the Iraqi people over there. Beautiful. Well, again, thank you for that perspective too, because that's equally as important. I mean, I've heard so many stories from people offering food and shelter to, you know, American military treating local dogs. You know, I mean, there's, there's so much kindness and compassion and people forget. They think, as you said, that we're just kicking indoors and John Ramboing everything when actually, you know, and then they've got the hearts and minds, which sounds very almost shallow and two-dimensional but the reality is there was kindness and compassion you know going both ways and obviously evil going both ways as well depending on you know the particular circumstance so it's important that we hear both sides of this coin so you 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 progress through you end up becoming special forces commander talk to me about your decision to finally transition out and as i'm sure we're going to get into now Another big thing in the whole mental health conversation that we touched on earlier was that transition. You know, you go from wearing a uniform, being part of a tribe, having purpose to 
being on the back door, you know, whether it's a fire station or, or a military base where your ID doesn't work anymore. So, you know, yeah. what, what made you pull the trigger and what was your personal experience like? Yeah, so I pulled the trigger because um, I had gone on a JSET, a Joint Combined Exchange Training uh, exercise with with my team to Mali, Africa. And we were there for, I don't know, about a month, a month and a half, I, I guess. And uh, towards the end of the deployment, and we were helping the the army there, the uh, Echelon Tactique Inter-Armee. They speak French, you know, and they're, and they're led by a commander who was, who was a very competent commander, but their their soldiers were very, very inexperienced. And they were um, AQIM, Al-Qaeda and Landis Maghreb. They were coming down across the Sahara Desert on horseback and, and other things. And they were raiding villages and raping women and taking supplies and just harassing and all this stuff. And so we were helping their their military to combat that. And we went out on a mission. It was more or less a training mission, but if we came in contact with the enemy, something would have happened. And we were out basically in the middle of nowhere. And this tribe, we were kind of embedded with this tribe. And and uh, I mean, it was like, you know, wearing loincloths and sh- chucking spears and women with their, with their breasts out. It was like National Geographic tribe, you know. And um, we were embedded with them for a day or so. And I started to get real sick. And my medic guy on my team, he was warned, as we all were, that, you know, there's a lot of crazy diseases and parasites and things in, in Mali that you have to be careful about. They had like a, a parasite that is called river blindness. It basically, eats the inside of your eyeball out and you go blind. They have uh, a team that was there before us. Two guys got spinal meningitis, you know, so I got sick and my my medic was like, Hey man, like, come on, like, we're going to isolate you. I want to make sure there's, you know, you're good. Like there's nothing crazy going on. So he gave me some meds, had me lay down for a little bit. I just got worse and worse and worse. And, uh, he called Fort Carson on the satellite phone, you know, our headquarters and was like, Hey, like, I'm, I'm really worried about the captain. Like he's really struggling. Like I want to get him uh, medically back to the embassy. And so they, a couple of my guys took me in a Humvee and they, took me to the embassy and they have a small little clinic in there and, you know, they gave me some meds and, and all this stuff. And I was there for a couple of days. I felt fine. I felt better. Went back to the team and we finished the deployment. Uh, but the day I got back to the States, uh, my girlfriend at the time picked me up at the airport and we went out to, you know, hang out and went to a football game and did a bunch of stuff. And that night I woke up, and um, there were police officers and fire department, fire, firemen and, you know, paramedics in my bedroom. And there was probably like 15, 12 to 15 guys in my house, right? And I was just like laying in bed, you know, and, and they're like, uh, what are you guys doing here? You know what I mean? And like, hey, man, you had, a, you had an episode. I'm like, what are you talking about? What episode, what's going on? And uh, they're like, you had a seizure. I'm like, what? I'm like, I've never had a seizure in my life. And I, I was kind of in a very combative mood, like, get out of my house. You know, like, what are you doing here? And I saw my girlfriend at the time, and she was just crying her eyes out in the corner of the room. And I was like, oh, this is serious. Like, this is something. 
and they're like, all right, what's your name? I'm like Jason. They're like, okay, where do you live? Um, uh, like Colorado. Like, okay. Um, you remember being in, in Africa? And I'm like, I've never been to Africa in my life. I'm like, okay. Like, what did you do today? And I'm like, um, I don't know. Like I just, that information just wasn't, I felt fine. I felt fine, but the information just like wasn't in my, my head. It was like an interesting feeling, you know, and I could feel like my tongue was bleeding and it was like throbbing and I, and I was really sore, you know? And so like, Hey, we're going to take you to the hospital. And so uh, I was like, okay. So they gave me some stuff and they, they took me in an ambulance to the hospital and I woke up the next day and they asked me the same questions. And I remembered everything. I remembered Africa. I remembered all these things. And uh, I was worried. You know, I had a seizure. Never had a tonic clonic seizure before. Obviously, I thought that something happened in, in Mali, in Africa, right? And so uh, I immediately went to my doctors at the at 10th group. And I was like, hey, guys, this is what happened. I'm really concerned. I picked something up. You know, and they're like, yeah, dude, like, we got to be careful about this. So... They ran all these tests and blood tests. They took spinal fluid. You know, they had me speak to the top neurologist. Nobody could find out anything. And um, and no, like all the tests came back, you know, negative or inconclusive or whatever. And, and all of a sudden I started having more of these seizures, you know, just shaking, falling down, biting my tongue, losing my short-term memory. And, you know, I was freaking everybody out and, you know, it wasn't a good way to live. And, uh, and so, uh, the doctor, he was like, Hey Jay, you know, you can't deploy right now until we figure this out. I'm like, okay, you can't shoot. I'm like, okay, you can't jump out of an airplane. Okay. You know, you can't even drive a car or, you know, really, you know, cause what happens if you're driving a car or something? So I had to fly my dad out to my house to basically take care of me and drive me to work every morning. This went on for about two years, having these seizures, and then uh, ultimately, you know, the the unit was like, "Hey, Jay, um, you know, we can't figure this out. We got one last shot. You know, go go to this neurologist." So we went there, and the doctor was like, "Listen, here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna come in tonight. We're gonna place these electrodes on your brain. We're gonna induce a seizure. We're gonna force you to have a seizure. Okay. Then what? Then we're gonna know." where in your brain the seizure is occurring. I'm like, okay, then what? Then we're going to go in and we're going to cut out that part of your brain where the seizure is occurring. I'm like, what? You're going to cut out my brain? You know, like, yeah. I'm like, like you're going to cut my brain out? Like some of it? They're like, well, yeah, some of it. You've got more. You'll be well, fine. <laughs> I'm like, well, it, will it make me like a vegetable? Like it's going to affect me, right? And they're like, well, it, it may or may not. I'm like, well, will it solve the issue? It may or may not solve the issue. Like, it sounds like the worst idea ever. Like, <laughs> you know, it may or may not solve the issue. I may or may not be a vegetable. Like, nah, I'm, I'm, let's not do that. And like, well, if we're not going to do that, we're going to have to medically retire you. I'm like, yeah, like, I'm, I'm cool with that. You know what I mean? Like, I get to keep my that. brain, yeah. <laughs> and so they medically retired me. Um, and, uh, and I said to myself, you know, the same question, I asked myself the same question all vets ask. Now what? What am I going to do? And so I got my MBA, um, you know, and I started doing some things that sort of helped the seizures go down, you know, and, and eventually over time, like they just kind of went away. Like they gave me a bunch of medicine, which completely 
turned me into a different person, like zoned me out. I was like, not me. You know what I mean? I was like, dude on drugs, you know, I wasn't happy and made me depressed and I didn't want to live my life that way. So look for alternative ways to, to kind of help out. And, uh, like I said earlier, my mom said, when I was younger, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And uh, I said, well, what am I, what are my friends doing? And a lot of them, at least my closest friends, a lot of the guys I went and lived in Korea with, um, they started businesses. Some of them were already wildly successful guys that were making millions and millions of dollars. And I said, well, you know, if they can do it, so can I. And so uh, I created two businesses. One is called Mission Six Zero. It's a it's a leadership development company. And uh, I did that, you know, it's not a, an innovative or a unique idea, but I did it fairly early on um, because that's something I'm knowledgeable about, something I'm passionate about. And I was lucky enough to to land a number of professional athletic teams as clients, which was, which was a lot of fun. Super cool experience, great stories, you know, and I brought in all my buddies that were Green Berets and Navy SEALs and Rangers and Marines and Medal of Honor recipients. And I brought them onto the team and I said, let's, let's create something special and, and do this. And then eventually I brought on scientists and PhDs and researchers and experts and sort of combined those two things together. So um, we provide this real life experience, these stories about leadership, but it also we have the science behind it, you know, and eventually I wrote a book called Deliberate Discomfort. It's about getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And it follows my journey as, as a Green Beret just after I earned my Green Beret, walking into my unit for the first time, meeting my boss, and then sort of experiencing um, leadership through the lenses of different individuals in my in my inner circle and what it means to them you know, what they did with their career, why they are the way that they are, why they make the decisions that they do. And then I kind of break down those experiences into relatable and actionable, uh, relatable and digestible action items where we answer the so what and the now what behind this. And then we bring in like a business example as well of clients that we've worked with in the past. This is how we've implemented this, this technique, this training and so forth. And uh, because we've been successful at Mission Six Zero and we bring in all these veterans to help. I created a nonprofit called Warrior Rising and we help veterans and their immediate family members start or accelerate their own businesses. And so that started uh, shortly after Mission Six Zero. We had uh, a number of, of injured combat vets, wounded vets come out to an event that we had with the Oakland Raiders and these guys were uh, happy to be back on a team happy to provide value and to do something, to be given a, a task, you know, and it's cathartic for them to share their stories uh, about combat. And it's also valuable for the client to hear these stories. And, and after this big event with the Raiders, we were celebrating and just hanging out. And I asked uh, the guys, you know, how is everything? Is there anything I can do? Sort of just basic leadership stuff that's been ingrained in you. You internalize this stuff, make sure your guys are taken care of and, and I hear the same thing from, from the guys. Hey, you know, there's charities out there that take us hunting and fishing. Uh, there's charities that build homes for us. I'm like, man, this is awesome. Glad to hear it. The guys are like, well, Jason, it's not that awesome. I'm like, well, it sounds pretty good, man. What's what's the deal? Well, you know, like we go hunting, we go fishing, we have a good time, we come back home. Nothing's changed for us. Matter of fact, it's worse because we'd rather be hunting and fishing. We're just waiting for the next time to get out of the house and do this. The guy who's a triple amputee Marine 
Yeah, I just had a home built for me in Montana. Wasn't that great, man? No, because I didn't ask for it. You know, I wanted to build a home on my uh, by myself. I wanted to earn it. I didn't want someone just to give me something like this. You know, I feel guilty. I feel bad. I don't feel like I'm a hero. I don't. I don't want someone just to give me something for free like this. It goes against everything I've learned in my life. That's why I joined the military. Disciplined, hardworking, patriotic. I want to do more with myself. I don't want people just to give me stuff. You know, I feel so bad. They don't even go inside my house because I don't want to feel that emotion of guilt. I sit outside my house all day long. I smoke weed because I don't want to go inside. And most of these guys respond to tough love. You know, it's what we're we're accustomed to. So I'm like, what are you going to do about it? You know, I said, well, Jay, when you got out of the military and your seizure disorder and like, what did you do? And, you know, and I said, well, I started this business. It gives me a chance to be creative and you know, add value to the client and make money for the company and hire you guys on and pay you guys and pay myself. And, you know, this is what it's all about for me now. And I guess I found my purpose again through through business. And the guys were like, well, we want to find that same purpose too. Um, and I'm like, well, what do you want to do? Like, well, we have ideas. I'm like, how many of you guys have ideas? They all had ideas. Let's hear them. You know, and, and James, most of the ideas were terrible ideas, you know, the worst ideas ever. And I told him that, I'm like, don't do this, guys, because, you know, you're going to fail and, and it's not going to succeed, you know. And, you know, somebody already did this and here's why, or there's already 5 billion competitors doing the same thing or or whatever. And, and they would thank me, you know, thank you for telling me this. I had no idea. And I was like, I saved this guy years of his life. I saved his life savings. And some of the ideas were pretty good. And I said, like, you go for it, guys, do it. And if that's what you're passionate about, you should do it. I think you'll be successful. And guys were saying, uh, all right, well, well, listen, man, I need some some help. You know, you you join me, you be my chief operating officer, you know, give me fifty thousand bucks, we'll do this. You move to Tampa Bay. I'm like, nah, you know, I've got my own thing going, guys. So I'm not gonna do that. You know? And they're like, Well, you said it was good. And I said, Well, show me your plan, man. Show me your business plan and your operating agreement, your SWOT analysis, your pro forma. And the guys are like, What are you talking about, man? Like I'm like, you don't know what that stuff is? Like, no. Nah. I'm like, we'll go figure it out. Oh, how do I figure it out? Do I have to get an MBA? I'm like, hey, Google some stuff, man. Just figure it out. You're a smart guy. And uh, I left the conversation like that. And we celebrated the rest of the night and had a good time. And I went home and started thinking about this a lot. These conversations, you know, guys are asking me for help, need help. You know, I just gave them tough love. I was pretty short. Kurt, you know, figure it out. Google some stuff. Like I can do more and I should do more. I'm in a position to do more. So I'm going to do more. And so I created Warrior Rising to help these vets and their immediate family members start their businesses. And so it's been a slow buildup. Learned a lot. You know, we've one of the things we learned that most nonprofits aren't doing is is the market research aspect is actually asking the veteran, what do you want? You know, it's almost like to me, like Christmas. Like you can do your best to find the perfect gift and you give it to somebody and they're like, Oh, I already have it. Or I don't like this or it wasn't my color. And I'm just going to return it, you know, in, in two days anyway. Why don't you ask somebody what they want and then get them that, you know, I found that that's the most effective and, and popular Christmas. What do you want? Okay. You know, wife, I'm going to get you this. And so that's what we do at Worry Rising. Like, what do you want? You want this? And we'll give it to you. And so last year, we helped uh, 8,600 veterans alone start businesses in 2022. 
You know, we're, we're a multi-million dollar nonprofit now, which is great. Um, we have 21 veteran businesses in a, uh, that are over, uh, that are multi-million dollar businesses right now that we've helped 21 of them, which is great. Business is hard. Not everybody's going to be a success. You know, if we can convince you not to pursue this, you know, or you decide on your own not to do this, that's a win. But if you do decide to do this, we're going to give you the education, coaching, the mentorship. We're going to provide you with um, potential investors, potential clients. You know, we have we have business showers all throughout the country, three of them this year in Iowa and Washington, D.C. and Salt Lake City. So we'll do everything we can to help you succeed, to give you the tools, but you have to earn it. You know, you have to put in the work. You have to do it yourself. And so people that resonate with Warrior Rising are people that are patriotic and believe that charity is teaching someone how to fish rather than giving them a fish. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as you said, we're in professions where we wanted to serve others. So the idea of a handout for a lot of people we're going to struggle with. One of the things that I see, and, I, and I'm be, you know, interested to see if you see the same thing in your profession, with the fire service specifically, when people start to transition out, ultimately they will teach at a fire academy or if it's law enforcement they'll go into security which is such a blinkered perspective of, of the skill set that you actually have when you take a step back and you look at the fact that someone hits three numbers on a phone and a crew of two or four will show up and mitigate any disaster that doesn't involve being arrested that's a pretty impressive skill set from you know working under pressure to teamwork to problem solving etc are you seeing that kind of short-sightedness and i mean that again in a positive way because we're so indoctrinated in the military and how are you able to kind of open the door and their eyes on the entrepreneurial side of the applying the skills that they got in uniform to whatever venture they want to start yeah that's a great question too so i say this number one to each his own not every veteran is created equal meaning that like just because they're a veteran doesn't mean they're a hero or they're a rock star. Or they, or they were a great soldier, sailor, air, uh, airman, or Marine. You know what I mean? Like everybody is, is created differently. Right. Uh, so that's the first thing. So some vets are outstanding, you know, at, at being business leaders, outstanding, you know, and some just, that's just not their fit. That's just not where they should, per, you know, pursue opportunities. Um, the veterans that are successful are the ones that are determined, like no matter what I'm going to succeed, you know, they're the ones that have attended those elite courses like Ranger school or the Q course, you know, or buds or, or whatever the ones that are like, listen, this is going to be hard, but no matter what, I don't care if I die, I'm going to finish this. You know, that determination, you know, ultimate determination, you know, is something that, you see a lot of in, in our success stories. Resourcefulness is another one. Like, hey, listen, uh, I don't have all the tools or the equipment that I need to succeed, but I'm going to figure it out. You know, there's a um, a phrase that we say a lot of in the military. It's message to Garcia. And there's a there was a book about this. And so essentially in the Spanish-American War, there was a, a soldier that was given the task to uh, simply, we need you to get this letter to Garcia. You know, and he had to go through, you know, the mountains and figure like, that's it. That's all he was given. Like, who, who's Garcia? What does he look like? What's his full name and rank? He didn't give that. All he was given was a letter and, and told to give it to Garcia. He had to figure out the rest on his own. And so that's just sort of a, 
you know, uh, uh, an example of, of something that we internalize in the military that we can use and leverage to our advantage in business, you know, just get it done. You know, you don't need to wait on somebody else. You need to figure it out. Uh, the next thing that uh, is tough is, is sales. It's marketing. You know, it's tough for a lot of veterans because you're sort of told, like, you don't talk about yourselves. You don't market yourselves. You don't, you're, we're quiet professionals, that sort of thing. I turn it around, turn it around and say, listen, you know, you're not talking about yourself. You're not beating your chest. You're not bragging about yourself. You're not wearing your medals. You're talking about your team, you know? And anytime we had to conduct a mission, you know, we had to compete with other equally impressive teams to get the best mission. And so I had to stand up in front of my boss and convince him that we were the best team, you know, which I did successfully many times. You know, I'm a great presenter. You know, it's just the bottom line, pretty damn good at it. And so that's another thing that you have to be good at, because if you don't make money as a business, it's just a hobby. You know, you can have as many hobbies as you want, but if you're going to start a business, it needs to be profitable. That's another thing uh, that I think about with uh, the veterans. Now, you know, what you said earlier was in the civilian world, I see a lot of people that come to me and they're like, Jason, I need to hire some veterans. Okay, great. What are we going to do? Oh, security. Oh, yeah. Is that all we can do? We're, we're just a bunch of security guards for you. Well, I need, certainly we could do that. You know, a lot, of, a lot of big, you know, green berets that can do 60 pound bicep curls routinely. You know, they can fire a gun and no jujitsu. I know a lot of those guys and we can help you out, but I don't want you to pigeonhole us and, and we're, we're security guards, you know, cause that's not who we are, man. These Green Berets, like, let me tell you about some of these guys. Some of them have PhDs from Harvard, man. You know, some of them got, you know, their, their master's from Oxford. You know, some of these guys are, are running multi-million dollar businesses. You know, you, you want us to to run security for you? You know what I mean? Like this, it's offensive in a way, but uh, I quickly try to educate those individuals that uh, the people that they're dealing with, you know, um, you know, I, I hear this sometimes, I, I guess it's sort of a joke, but for law enforcement, the, the officer will approach the car and say, Hey, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And then the, uh, the person in the car says something like, because you got all C's in high school, you know what I mean? Or, you know, I remember John Kerry, uh, when he was giving a speech, when he was running for president, he said something along the lines of, um, you know, you can, you can be smart and make something of yourself or, or you can join the army or something like that. And he laughed about it. I'm like, this motherfucker, you know, like this dude right here, he was, he was in the military. He should know better. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like saying like, oh, like you're a high school dropout or you can't make anything of yourself. You join the army or join the military. Like this is the lamest shit ever. You know what I mean? Are you kidding me? You know, like, you're talking to these, my friends, like these guys, like, um, you know, Medal of Honor guys, doctors, lawyers, you know, um, Harvard guys, Stanford guys, you know, West Point, Naval Academy, Air Force Academy. Like, come on. You know what I mean? Like, these are people that are at the tip of the spear. They're at the pinnacle of success. And, um, We've got to do a better job of, I guess, educating people that that we're not knuckle draggers or or simply security guards for for hire. Yeah, 
No, I had a, a guy, Lee Sammartino, who's uh, pretty well respected in the marketing world. He works with a lot of big brands. And I asked him about the fire service. I'm like, we, even our profession, we brand so poorly that people still ask in 2023, why is there a fire engine at our medical call? You know, and they still think that we sit around playing cards, petting the Dalmatian and waiting for a fire. Even though if you stand on any main road of any city or town, all you hear is sirens all day. So we've done a horrible job, not only you know, at acknowledging our skill set, but also educating the public on what we do in the first place. So it's like, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Absolutely. And then I think that's what we face with the Green Berets because the Navy SEALs do such a great job of marketing themselves. You know, anytime you explain to somebody, oh, I'm a Green Beret. Oh, is that like a Navy SEAL? And you sort of roll your eyes. You're like, come on. You know, like, um, but we we're, we're our slogan or our, um, our nickname is the, the Quiet Professionals. And uh, just because we're quiet professionals doesn't mean we need to be silent professionals, you know? And we need to, um, uh, the fire department as well, the fire guys as well, do a better job of of marketing. Because marketing is not a bad thing. SEALs are excelling at it. <laughs> yes, they are. One thing I've, I've found is navigating that line between humility and being meek. And those are two very different things. Oh, I agree 100%, 100% on that, uh, or perceived humility. You know, uh, to me, like I said earlier, if you deflect towards helping other people or your mission or your values or why you're doing the things that you're doing, I think the community embraces that. I think if you're beating your chest and you're saying how much of a badass you are individually, I think the community is disgusted with that. You know, and you give everybody else a bad name. But for whatever reason, because that's all that's out there, you know, the civilian populace sees it, believes it, and embraces it, even though it's something toxic. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to back to the seizures in just for a second. I've got one question to ask you. But before I do... One thing that popped in my head when you were talking about you know, not everyone being the right fit for entrepreneurship, I've I've worked for a fire department for 14 years. When I transitioned out to do this, um, it was incredibly empowering, and it's it's scary, and it's not you know it's not a a lucrative money maker, but it's so fulfilling. You know, I mean that that um, that that true richness, if you like. Um, but one of my guests said something that I'd never heard before and I thought was such an incredibly powerful concept. If you simply do not want to go out completely on your own was the concept of entrepreneurship. So you become, you know, uh, an entrepreneur, but within an established company already or a charity or whatever it is. So what about that concept? Has that kind of come across your radar to be that force multiply in something that already exists rather than creating something from the ground up? That's a great concept. It's something that we explored a few years ago as well. I haven't actually heard that lately. It was sort of a hot buzz buzz item for a while. Um, the way that I look at that is uh, you have to invest in your people or somebody else will invest in them. Meaning people are here for a reason, a very specific, very personal reason. It's oftentimes a very selfish reason. But I don't mind the selfishness because – um, I like this quote that um, it's about being selfish, about being selfless, right? So if you have an idea 
So, so essentially this. So when I hire you, I ask you, why are you here? What do you want? You know, what, what, what's your goal? What's your aspiration? What do you want to do with yourself? And if I can help you accomplish that, you're going to help me accomplish what I want to accomplish right now. So that's that entrepreneurship uh, model where, you know, a guy might come to me and say, Jason, I, I, I need to learn from you. I need a job right now. I need to make money. But what I really want to do, my passion is this. Okay. Knowing that, I can inspire you, which will help you become self-motivated, which will help get results and, you know, you to take action and get results. And so I'll help you accomplish your goals because that's what you're that's where your fuel is. That that's what lights your fire. That's where the, where the flame is for you. And you might not be as interested or passionate about what I'm doing, but by helping me out, it's a means to an end. You know, you're going to help me out, help me accomplish these goals, and in turn, I'm going to help you accomplish yours. And that's to me how you get buy-in. So that's one of the biggest issues that companies come to me with is. You know, a decision maker, a leader will say, listen, I started this company, Jason. I'm passionate about it. I want it to succeed. I want my company, my employees to feel the same way about this organization as I do. Well, in order for them to buy into you, buy into the company, you need to buy into them first. And here's how you do it. You know, find out what they are doing here, what their goals and aspirations and dreams are. If you can help them accomplish that, they will follow you everywhere. And so that's one of the things that we work on. And so on top of that, if somebody has a great idea that I want to invest in, and now I'm a, I'm a partner, I'm a silent partner. I'm, I'm some sort of, uh, you know, shareholder. I own some equity in their company and they thank me for it, you know? And so that's how I, I look at that whole, whole concept. Beautiful. Yeah. actually kind of parallels my journey out of the fire service because when I was being interviewed in my last place, it was, you know, what can you bring to the job? You know, how can you make it better? And I'd list off some things that I, you know, hope I would be able to add value to when I joined that department. And then you got in and like, actually, no, they don't want to hear any of that. <laughs> it was it was just lip service at the front door. So ultimately, I had to transition out to try and make a difference in, in the fire service. But, um, you know, like you said, there are some fantastic companies. I mean, Virgin, I would say, was probably one where their whole ethos is investing in their people if their people are happy then the customer is happy so when the fire service talks about being a business i'm like okay that's fine then find a business that actually invests in their people and model yourself on them that's exactly correct and that's something that just seems so alien 20 years ago but it's such a powerful truth you know and for success in any organization Absolutely. Well, I want to hit one topic before we go to some closing questions, if you've got time. Sure. Um, you talked about the seizures. I had one of your fellow Green Berets, Zach Gardner, on the show, who actually just went around the world with on a, a thing called 7X. Um, and nice. he had had a seizure either after a fall from a Humvee or prior to, and then he fell. But those seizures then he went from from like you no seizures ever to this consistent seizure he went through the pharmaceutical route everything got worse and then ultimately it was plant medicine i believe it was i think it was thc and cbd together um that ended up fixing him and obviously the problem is you've got the whole what you can and can't take in uniform element which is another entire conversation but did you ever experiment with with that side with your seizures or was it just simply a matter of time before they went away 
Uh, no, I, I didn't experiment with that, but I would be receptive. I'd, I'd welcome that. I'd be interested in, in in that. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I've talked to a lot of guys in a similar predicament as me, and they've said that this completely cured them, that healed them, and so forth. So I would I would certainly welcome that. Um, although I'm no longer on medicine and haven't had a seizure in a little while, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm cured. You know what I mean? Because number one, we never found out why they were happening. Number two, we never we never stopped them. They just sort of dissipated on their own, eventually receded. Um, I think my lifestyle had a lot to do with that. You know, like some people will say, oh, you're it's very stressful. I'm like, well, yeah, it's stressful, but it wasn't any more stressful than it was in combat. And I wasn't in combat at the time. Or some people will say, oh, you know, um, what happened was a TBI. Maybe, maybe it was, or maybe it was a, you know, um, a collection of TBIs, like just playing sports and getting concussions throughout my life. Maybe that's it. Like that's what Brent McCartney talks about all the time, you know, and having that, you know, some people will say, well, it was, um, you know, the water bottle, water that we drank in, in combat, you know, it was basically cheap plastic that we're sitting out on pallets in 125 degree weather that, the chemicals in the plastic just sort of seeped into the water and and you drank it and, and you poisoned yourself. Okay, maybe that was it. Maybe I picked up something in Mali, you know, like that's that's a popular theory too. So I, I just don't know. You know, and I don't spend really any time anymore trying to guess at why it happened and, and why they sort of stopped. You know, I just try to live every day to the best of my ability and and be grateful for every day. You know, and um, and just recognize that, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, like um, my life is in the hands of a higher power. You know, whatever the higher power decides to do with me is, it's what's going to happen, and I have no control over that. Beautiful. Well, the first of the closing questions I love to ask. You talked about your book, Deliberate Discomfort. Are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be pertaining to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, you can see behind me. So I have my favorite books ever right behind me, books that made an impact on me in my life. So you got uh, Catcher in the Rye. It was one of the first books I've ever read. You know, um, I haven't read that in a long time, but as a young man, it had a huge impact on me. Uh, Catch Me If You Can. It's the Frank W. Abagnale book. I was on my mission when I found a a tape, you know, an old old tape of him giving a presentation to a to a college or a university, him explaining his life, and I was so impacted by that dude, man, just like what he was able to do as a teenager, you know, and pull off. I just thought that was absolutely incredible, um, and so I, I listened to that tape probably a thousand times. You know, honestly, uh, I was just so uh, entertained by it. And then I read the book, which is, is a much better, you know, uh, of what he did. And later in life, I met Frank Abagnale. And we did a presentation together in Florida. And, you know, you meet your heroes sometimes and they're not all what you thought they were going to be. Frank was was what I thought he was going to be and then some. He was the nicest guy, the coolest guy, so much fun to hang out with. And I asked him to uh, endorse my book. And so he wrote a testimonial 
that I have on the back cover of my book. So that's a huge one for me. Uh, Catch 22 is a book that uh, has impacted me quite a bit. Uh, Jack Kerouac, The Art of War, The Prince, Machiavelli. And some books that I read recently, they're also behind me. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Uh, I thought that was a brilliant book. I loved it. Excuse me for cursing. Uh, the Dip, uh, The Power of Regret, Leadership and Self-Deception, and a book called Who, which is sort of like uh, the Simon Sinek Why. This is about Who, which I thought was pretty powerful. So those books are behind me. Those books I read this year. All of those books I read this year. Um, so I like to read um, anything, really. You know, I'll read nonfiction, fiction. I'll read improvement books. I'll read whatever. Disinterested in in reading. Brilliant. Well, that's quite the list. So thank you. Uh, what about movies and or documentaries that you love? Oh, they're also behind me too. Somebody, somebody <laughs> said, yeah. So uh, I got Star Wars uh, episodes four through six or the original Star Wars. I got it, the Indiana Jones up there. I got the Godfather up there. I got Band of Brothers. I got John Adams. I got the sitcom Arrested Development before they went to Netflix. And then I got a bunch of, you know, mafia movies and comedies and things like that. Brilliant. Yeah, Band of Brothers is, is one that comes up over and over and over again. Such an incredible show. It's emotional, man. You know, I think HBO brings it out every like 4th of July or or something. Memorial Day, maybe. Anyway, it's a great, it's a great, and when, when, when it's on, man, you can't break away. You got to watch it. Yeah. You got to sit there and watch it, you know? Yeah. I think I've watched it. Oh God, it must be like eight times now, easily the whole entire, you know, series. So I had, uh, Captain Dale die on the show, um, who I worked with in Japan years ago. Um, and then, wow. uh, the guy who played the medic in the show. So quite a few different perspectives of that story. So it's been pretty amazing. Um, speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, I've got a friend, uh, so many friends. So if you if you read about any of my buddies in Deliberate Discomfort, I can certainly have them on the show. First guy that comes to my mind is, is Dr. Dave Hageman. He uh, attended West Point with me, played football. He was a, a an army veteran, combat veteran. He's the uh, chief of the Denver Fire Department. So he got out and became a a fireman, and uh, he got his PhD in sports science and so forth. And he's, uh, I think, you'd really like him. Yeah, I'd love to connect with him if you're able to help. Sure, shoot me an email, and I'll I'll make the connection. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure where people know know where to find you and all the sites. What do you do to decompress? Uh, there's a lot that I do to decompress and I feel like I need several small decompressions throughout the day. Um, I try to listen to my body. So if my body says, take a nap, I'll try to take a 15 minute nap. And sometimes that's all I need. My wife's like, I can't believe you can, you know, be completely recharged in 15 minutes, but I can sometimes, you know, most times I can, uh, I like to work out, especially in the morning, you know, it kind of puts me on the right foot for the day. And if you work out every day, I feel like it, it's like a transformation for for your body. You know, especially if you work out hard. Uh, that that's certainly something there. I I've been single. I got married when I was thirty eight years old, thirty nine years old, and so I've been single for a long time. 
living by myself for a lot of that time. And I always, whenever I walked into my apartment or whatever, I just turn on the TV and it just kind of helped combat loneliness, you know? And so um, it was an opportunity for me because I had such a stressful profession, just turn my mind off, you know, just completely just like be mindless and just watch something on TV, any type of conspiracy or, you know, alien or anything like that, aliens or unsolved murder mysteries. Like that's like, I'm, I'm in just like sit me in front of the TV and I'll decompress if I can watch that stuff. So that's what I'll tell you. Brilliant. I just started watching the one, I forget the name of it now, but I think it's in the press because I think he just got charged, but it was the South Carolina murders where there was a boat accident and then I think two yeah, of the, the Murdoch guy. Yeah. yeah. Alex, Alec Murdoch. Yeah, that's, uh, I think there's a Netflix miniseries, limited edition series about that, four episodes. Um, that's a good one. I actually watched that one too. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, I think I've got, I'm on episode three and about two thirds of the way through, so I'm almost there, but uh, yeah, just another... You know, I'm sure underlying element of how shady some <laughs> families and organizations can be. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a tough one to, to to listen to. There are a lot of murders going on in that small town, man. That's weird. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, for people listening, where are the best places to find Mission Six Zero, Warrior Rising, and then yourself personally on social media? Absolutely. So, social media for me personally, Jason Van Camp. You can find me mainly on LinkedIn. Uh, I tend to do a lot of posts on LinkedIn. Uh, just look Jason Van Camp, and I'll probably be the first guy that pops up with that name. And the next is I'm on Instagram a little bit, not really. Facebook a little bit, not really. So those are the three areas, mainly LinkedIn. Uh, Warrior Rising, we're on YouTube, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So we'd love for you to follow us. Uh, warrior not warriors warrior rising and uh, i believe our hashtag on instagram is we are warrior rising and so uh if you look for our logo uh you'll find us there mission six zero sort of the same thing um you'll find us on linkedin instagram and facebook and also youtube so if you uh mission six zero you can spell it in just about any way you'd like m60 m60 uh, spell it all out with with letters or mission and number six Z E R O. There's a lot of ways that we we own. So um, look for us in that fashion. Of course, if you want to email me, you can email me at jason at warriorrising.org. Our website is warriorrising.org or jason at mission six zero, all spelled out dot com. And then the website is mission six zero. If you want to be involved in the deliberate discomfort challenge, sixty day challenge. Uh, challenge.deliberatediscomfort.com Brilliant. Well, Jason, I want to say thank you so much. I never know really where these conversations are going. We spent a lot of time, you know, early life, but I mean, that's what makes these so powerful. And obviously that then, you know, you see the ripple effect later as well. So I want to thank you so much for being not only so generous with your time, but also being vulnerable and courageous in your storytelling today. Hey, absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 